All right. Welcome, audience, to a special episode of Global Surgery in ENT in a Nutshell. It's an in-person interview with myself, Dr. Josh Wiederman, as the host, and with me is Dr. Mark Schrein. And Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And I'm noticing as I'm looking out the window that there are actually boats passing by and our horizon is kind of bobbing as we're sitting here. So what are we doing here? Yeah, so we are sitting on the Global Mercy, which is one of the two hospital ships run by an organization called Mercy Ships that uh, I've been working for for about 15 years now. And what is the purpose of the ship being here and physically where are we? We are in Dakar, which is the capital of Senegal, so we're docked off the coast of Dakar in, in the port. Um, and the ship spends, uh, in general, 10 months at a time uh, in countries, 10 months per year at a time, in countries primarily along the West African coast. We provide specialized surgical care, seven different specialties, uh, including an ENT, head and neck, maxillofacial sort of joint specialty. Mm -hmm. And we are currently on a brand new flagship. So other than the operating rooms that are, are doing maxillofacial and orthopedic surgery currently, what else is on the ship and, and what is its purpose? So the ship itself is 12 decks tall. The hospital takes up two decks. There are six operating rooms in the hospital. As you've said, Josh, there are two currently running. We're just ramping up our field service here. So we tend to start slow uh, and ramp up as the, as the months go on. There are 102 patient beds. There's a four bed ICU. There's a recovery room, preoperative care area. There's rehab, there's physical therapy, there's an outpatient clinic, you name it. Basically anything that you would need to do high quality surgical care, you know, at home, just packaged onto a ship mm -hmm. and docked off the coast of West African countries for, for 10 months at a time. Mm -hmm. And apart from also being a successful author, you also do a lot of research in the global surgery world. And in our previous podcast, we've talked about uh, the differences between ways in which the world community can contribute to issues with access and quality surgery. And we'll include uh, the picture below in our, in our websites on the pyramid of different ways that people can contribute. Uh, but starting at the top of the least amount of people, but perhaps with uh, the highest amount of impact, are those that write policy at the international or national level. We've also talked about on this podcast kind of the bottom of the pyramid that has the highest number of people in short-term surgical trips that can make meaningful impacts for short periods of time. And then somewhere in the middle are, are fellowships and NGOs, non-government organizations. But as you just mentioned, this ship and Mercy Ships in general kind of is in its own category where you can take everything or almost everything from a high-income country's point of view on quality of care and bring it to an area that has very limited access. So in that regard, how do you feel that, that this as an entity is providing that access and or quality of care compared to other ways to provide care? Yeah, <clears throat> it's not a small question mm -hmm. you're asking. You know, I've, I've spoken before about how 
the short-term surgical model is potentially more harmful than helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, it's not just my opinion, there's plenty of evidence on the outcomes from short-term surgical trips not being not at all what they are in high-income countries, despite the fact that the surgeons themselves uh, and the surgical team comes from, potentially comes from high-income high countries, to say nothing of the uh, potential economic impact that a, a trip like that would have on the local surgeon's mm -hmm. uh, market share. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's evidence also on that, that, uh, that if there are known trips coming, that local patients will wait mm -hmm. uh, and not see care at their institutions. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, as you, as you say, there's uh, changes that have to be made on the policy level, the changes have to, that have to be made nationally, regionally, um, to bring surgery into the conversation, kind of out of the corner um, where it's been, you know, surgeons have been working in global health for 500 years, but we've just kind of been doing this, like just go doing our thing mm -hmm. in our small mission hospital and never being part of the policy conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're right, the Mercy Ships and a, a few other NGOs that do something similar sit in this kind of negative space, this, this inter space between building a hospital and planting in one place for the rest of your life mm -hmm. versus these short-term trips mm -hmm. that fly in and fly out. Because our model, at least, is a five-year engagement with countries. We bring the ship First of all, when I say we bring, we're invited. We never go to a country that I haven't been invited. So we're invited into a country to start that five-year engagement. We bring a ship in for about 10 months, right about in the middle of those five years. But across the five years, we're working in the healthcare education sector, which is a lot of what we do, uh, and digging more and more right now into postgraduate training uh, as a part of the ship's visit to the country, whether that's in fellowships or residency rotations. So so we do that. We also, as Josh, you've said, we kind of bring in this tertiary care level hospital, referral type hospital, because we're not tied to the electricity grid or the water supply in the country to a large degree, because we, we know that the lights will stay on in the operating room and the suction will work and, and all that we can do more complex cases mm -hmm. um, than perhaps are done in the, in the local system. Not because the staff can't do them, but because they're limited by the infrastructure that they're working in. And, and so that allows us to do those sorts of cases that may not get treated uh, otherwise. Mm -hmm. And we've also talked quite a bit, Mark, on this podcast series about the limitations of outcomes analysis and how uh, that is disabling for many people trying to perform global surgeries. You can physically do it, whether or not you have resources, but whether you are making a meaningful impact and doing good for that patient and that patient's family requires some type of outcome measure, which is very difficult to do. And speaking from a personal standpoint, when I lived in Ethiopia, I had the luxury of being able to, to physically be in country for more than a year at a time. However, follow-up was still limited because many patients cannot afford to come back to the hospital again or even in the first place. And I know that's something you study too. So after listening to your lecture, uh, Mark gave the entire ship a lecture yesterday about following outcomes on Mercy Ships, how are you tackling 
following outcomes when the ship is not physically here for a year at a time? Yeah, so that's a great question. The global, as you just said, the global surgery conversation has been limited by uh, long-term outcomes. And there's often a, I don't know, a fatalistic feeling that, oh, we just can't get long-term outcomes in, uh, in global surgery. So we'll just have to accept the short-term outcomes that we have. That's not true. It can happen. We, just, we have a paper out in which we followed out patients for a year. Uh, so it can happen. It took a lot of work. And actually, one of the things that you said is one of the things that we address here on the ship. We basically pay for patients' transportation um, mm. from not directly from their homes, but from the nearest big city uh, to the ship mm-hmm. and back. If they need to come back, if we want to see them five years later, we will bring them here. We don't. So we pay for the transportation. Obviously, if they spend six weeks with us, they're spending six weeks not working. So that sort of indirect cost is not a cost that we cover. But all the direct costs that patients face for either the surgery or the follow-up care are costs that we cover. So that, you know, it it takes dedicated people. It takes a bit of money for it to happen. But uh, we are really interested in delivering the highest quality surgery that we can. And that means learning from our complications and learning Mm -hmm. from our outcomes. Um, we're also interested, and this was part of the lecture that Josh, you're referring to, we're interested in taking a more holistic view of patient outcomes. The complication rates, the success rates, those are important. Important for quality assurance in the hospital. Uh, surgical disease impacts a whole bunch of domains in a patient's life, including their ability to work, their ability to go to school, their ability to, to engage with their community their financial status, et cetera. And these are things that we also have started following and are hoping to continue to follow and, and, and broaden our impact evaluation uh, with that more holistic view. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's a very important point to put forward. And I think that we should expand on that a little bit. In other podcasts, we've discussed uh, disability-adjusted life years quite a bit and how that can be a metric for what diseases in which we should try to tackle as a community, as a global surgery community. You are mentioning uh, that there might be a way in which we can use disability-adjusted life years to monitor our our impact on a community. Would you mind uh, expanding on that? Sure. I think disability-adjusted life years, DALIs, or their counterpart qualities, quality-adjusted life years, are good for translating the way I said it in the lecture that Josh, you referring to, translating our output into outcomes. So we can, and we're, we on Mercy Ships and a lot of people, a lot of NGOs report the number of things that we did, the number of surgeries we did. We did you know, 2,000 surgeries this last mm-hmm. year, which is cool, which is a, a, a measure. But what did those surgeries accomplish? Mm-hmm. And there are many, many ways, as I've said, there's sort of a holistic way to, to evaluate that and to evaluate an impact on health disability-adjusted life year is one way to do it. I will say um, one of the reasons that it's important to be holistic in our evaluation is because what you choose as your metric may bake into your question the answer itself. In other words, if we only focus on disability-adjusted life years, we focus on undiscounted disability-adjusted life years, every NGO would be a pediatric NGO. Mm -hmm because the most, most life years gained are if you treat the youngest patients. Mm-hmm. That is an inequitable approach mm-hmm. uh, to surgery. So we have to be conscious of our, the metrics that we choose to evaluate our impact 
And I firmly believe that dallies and qualies are a good metric. Uh, we just have to be aware of their limitations and uh, and not use them as the only thing that we're mm -hmm. trying to do in the same way that we shouldn't use the number of things that we do as the only metric we have, right? Again, if if the only thing that mattered to us was simply doing the most surgery possible, mm -hmm. we would do cataracts on this entire huge ship because those are very, very quick. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's finding that balance. It's finding that holistic approach to evaluating our impact that I think uh, that we're still working on here as an organization. And I think, uh, you know, we really need to dig into. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest impacts in the global surgery world, which I know that you are very familiar with, and in our podcast, we have mentioned quite a few times the Lancet Commission's in 2015 releasing data uh, that translates the issues to access to surgery into economic terms mm -hmm. and showing the, the financial impact on the world for all of this missed opportunity and missed disease. Are there efforts uh, within this community uh, to try to understand how patients are gaining their financial strength back after being in a ship like this and how they're able to contribute back to their community following surgery? Yes, yes and not enough. Uh, yes, and I, I hope we do more. There are two ways I wanna answer that question. One is, even if we pay, for, even if we pay for, for transportation, even if we pay for care, which we do, care, all the care here is free, mm -hmm. um, patients still have to outlay some money to, to get here and or to bring their caregivers and or any number of things so not to get here, but to get to the nearest city that, that we pick them up from. Anyway, so they're still spending some money. Um, and for patients who are you know below pov international poverty lines, even that small amount of money mm -hmm. can be defined as catastrophic. Um, so one of the things that we looked at is whether or not after the surgeries that we do, and we looked specifically in our head and neck service for this, after the surgeries that we do, even if they've had this sort of catastrophic hit, do their incomes go up for the, the following year? Do they stay the same or do they go down? Mm -hmm. And we found that they went up, mm -hmm. which is good, which is an indication, obviously it's not a proof, but it's an indication that perhaps because their maxillofacial tumors have been taken out or the clefts have been corrected, they are able to re-engage as economically productive members of their society. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting finding because it's not true of every case. So there's mm. some, some great work by John Scott up in Michigan uh, looking at patients in the U.S. who face catastrophic expense for their trauma. Mm -hmm. And after their catastrophic ex expense, their incomes continue to go down. Mm. It's a really fascinating area of research, and it probably is going to end up being kind of specialty-specific and type of surgery-specific. We're taking patients with disfiguring tumors, clefts, et cetera, that already ostracize them, mm -hmm. and we're repairing them. Mm -hmm. Whereas patients who are facing trauma, probably not ostracized in the beginning, and now have huge you know, rehab, et cetera, et cetera, uh, things, they're not able to be as productive as they were before. So it's mm -hmm. sort of probably a, where you're starting and where you're ending question. Mm -hmm. That's one answer to your question. The second answer is, in our measurements of uh, disability pre and post-op, we use the WHO's Disability Assessment Schedule, which has six domains that it asks about. Pain, mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the domains it asks about is community engagement. Mm -hmm. Overall, 
people's disability goes down after surgery, which is good to see, but also be very disturbing if it went up after surgery. Mm -hmm. That would be a, a very important thing for us to know. So it's not surprising that their disability goes down after surgery. The interesting thing is when we, when we analyzed based on which domain, the domain that had the biggest improvement was the domain of community engagement. Mm more than pain, more than anxiety, more than mm -hmm. mobility, all those still those sorts of things for the maxillofacial patients, it was being mm -hmm. able to re-engage with their community. Mm -hmm. and, and I bet that getting re-engaged with your community would uh, give that patient access to decision-making because, you know, we've always talked about in this podcast and the two of us that poverty is not just a financial right. uh, aspect. Right. It's an ability to make life decisions. And a lot of patients that have disfiguring facial anomalies cannot make good life decisions because they aren't given those options. So maybe having access to community allows them to then find a job and to then advance their life in a positive way. That's the hope. I mean, yes, we can tell ourselves that story. I believe that story. Mm -hmm. That is the hope. And we've got some evidence of that, right? Improvement in community engagement and improvement in incomes. Mm -hmm. Some evidence of that. We got a lot more to do to see if that's actually true. A lot yeah. more uh, follow-up and you know, deeper phenomenological analyses and qualitative analyses to see if that's what actually happened. Yeah, we suspect it is, but can't know for sure. Well, I, I can't emphasize enough how meaningful it is to this community. I'm speaking for them that an institution such as this is going out of their way to try to answer these questions and also at the same time providing care. Uh, it's a very meaningful entity that we exist in right now, sitting in water at a dock in Dakar, Senegal. It's still kind of mind-blowing to me, even though I've yeah. been here for two weeks. Yeah. So I, I also want to give you the opportunity for anything that you'd like to relay to our audience that's trying to learn about global surgery and how they can get integrated into it. You've had a very interesting path towards where you are right now. And that's a lot of what your novel, what your book was about. Uh, and I encourage our listeners to look it up. It's a really good read. But anything that you'd like to pass on? Yeah, that's a, also a really big question, really open-ended <laughs> question. Done purposely so yes. that you can pluck out just a tad bit of pearls that Perfect. come out. Perfect. Well, I'd say a couple of things. I, I've already said this, and it's, it's kind of my hobby horse here. Um, if you want to get you, if, if the listener, if uh, somebody wants to get involved in global surgery, I would encourage your listeners to be really uh, thoughtful about how they do it. The reason that the sort of one-week mission trip type model has persisted for so long is because it's easiest for us, right? It fits mm -hmm. our schedules, our high-income high country mm -hmm. surgical schedules. So it's easy to take a week of vacation and go to, mm -hmm. you know, wherever and, uh, you know, fix some cleft lips. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty colonialist way of approaching global surgery. And I, I would just be frank uh, about that. So for people who are interested in doing this, I think it's really important to be thoughtful in whom you engage with. Uh, mm -hmm. Try to find institutions that, you know, are part of the community or have longer term engagement or are, are doing this sort of more transformative, transformative is a, is a loaded word as mm -hmm. is sustainable, but whatever, doing mm -hmm. this sort of longer term approach to things. So I'd say that for sure. Um, I'd also say, you know, the late Paul Farmer used to say all the time, uh, we talk about global health as if it's health over there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but Boston is on the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fundamental thing that we are all working towards is a reduction in the inequity in access to care. Mm-hmm. Now it happens to be right now that the highest number of DALIs <clears throat> in surgical disease are in Sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And it'll probably be like that for a bit, but there's a qualitative difference between thinking about global health and global surgery as just O surgery in the other country, as opposed to thinking about this as an attempt to right inequities. Mm -hmm. And those inequities exist in our backyards Mm -hmm. uh, as well. Whatever city that you're in, uh, those inequities exist. Then the last thing that I would say, speaking to students or residents, people who are at that stage in their career who want to make global surgery a, a bigger part of their lives and don't want to do the one-week mission trip, is to say that in your training, it is imperative to be the best medical student, best resident that you can be. In other words, there's still a little bit, it's changing now, but there's still a little bit of this impression that people who want to do global health just kind of don't really want to be surgeons. They're, they really want to be doing something else. Mm. So it's, they're kind of the, the throwaway residents, the throwaway uh, students, the you know, faculty don't want, to, don't want to invest into. Mm. Be the best student and or resident that you can be, A, to continue to mitigate against that impression, and also B, Josh, as you've seen, when you get into these countries, your thrown surgeries, your thrown conditions that you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. By definition, you will never have seen this before. You need to know how to operate, mm-hmm. just fundamentally how to operate mm-hmm. um, to be able to, to deliver the best care that you can to these patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't agree more. Every time I talk to you, I learn something new, even, even planning this podcast and, and working with you. Uh, So I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure working with you. And thank you for spending some time with our listeners. Awesome. Thanks so much, Josh. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com global surgery podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.